0: Welcome, everybody, to Chuck Yates' Needs a Job, the podcast. We're going to ha- get into our conversation with Michael Patrick Smith in just a second, but I wanted to note for the record, this podcast was recorded last week, before the big kerfuffle on Sunday night on Twitter. If any of y'all missed it, feel free to look at you know my timeline, Michael Patrick Smith's timeline, and the like. A lot of Twitter flurry about this. And I'll just cut to the chase. Guys, guys. EFT, We may have won a battle Sunday night talking about how evil it is that somebody would actually testify in front of Congress and the like. We lost the fucking war. Because if we can't find a spot on Team Energy for a progressive from the East Coast who works in the oil field, says great things about our business... Defends fracking in the New York Times, and he just wants some reforms, and those are very important to him, and he feels the need to talk about those. If we can't find room in our tent for a guy like that, there are going to be 25 of us trying to defend the energy business, and quite frankly, we'll get what we deserve. (laughs) Welcome everybody to Chuck Yates Needs a Job the podcast. We're very honored today to have as our guest Michael Patrick Smith. Uh, I just can't help it. I got to call you Magic Mike. Hey, Magic Mike, how are you?
1: How you doing, man? <laughs> how you doing? I'm
0: good. I'm good. Well, it's really awesome that you're on. And so I probably violated the bingo card by saying that. Um, here's what happened. Two weeks ago somebody sent me a little clip of you on the today show talking about this book you wrote the good hand and i just totally missed it um Mm -hmm. because it i'll let you get into it in just a second but it you know you 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 released it call it you know 18 months ago or so um it seems like with pandemic you know dates all get all get messed up And so I immediately downloaded the audio book. So you've been in my ear for a couple of weeks as I've been listening to this story and I was talking to my mom about it because she was asking, okay, who's coming on the podcast? And I was telling her and I, and she goes, well, what's the book about? And I go, mom, it's crazy. It feels like Brene Brown was trying to write fear and loathing in Las Vegas but she's been sitting there watching the movie Giant the whole time, and, and that's what the, the the book really feels like. So why don't I do right. this, Magic Mike? Why don't I shut up and uh, and let you tell us about the, uh, the book, because I'm not sure I did it justice there.
1: Yeah, well, it's actually what we you know. One of my favorite things to hear is that... Uh, people who read it, it's kind of are like, this is not what I expected it was gonna be. <laughs> and there's a lot of um, you know, when we're in the process of putting it together and trying to um coming up with a plan to get it out and how to present it even. Um, there's kind of some questions like, is this a memoir? Is this a creative nonfiction? You know, um, and it's something that I really am proud of that's in the book. And that it's a really personal story, um, primarily that's about me i um, working for a year in the Bakken oil patch. I worked as a swamper and a crane rigger for a rig moving company. Um, and then it also branches out into uh, kind of the history of North Dakota, a little bit of the science around kind of more almost maybe the philosophy around oil and sort of what it's done and how it's changed our world. And then um, also, you know, the thing that I guess I kept hearing when I was in the oil patch um, was that you know from other friends and people who knew me i mean people always ask well why like why did you go out there and do that so i kind of used the book to try to answer that question um and then for me the other you know kind of maybe the most important part or the motivation for me to write it was to write about the guys that i met and the people who i met who were working those um just really rough demanding jobs and um, kind of in tribute to them, you know, and in tribute to people who, who do hard work like that. Because what's interesting about your take
0: on this book, you know, if a kid who grows up in Midland, Texas, goes and works in the oil field, this book doesn't get written. I mean, not to, to denigrate the stories of actually working in the oil field and, and uh, moving rigs, et cetera, but I think mm-hmm. your background yeah. in terms of, and don't let me put words in your mouth, but being what I would think of as a liberal, being from the East Coast, being mm-hmm. someone doing theater, being a folk singer, that's not a background that generally makes its way out to the, uh, to the oil field. And so kind of lo- you looking at the oil field through that lens is, is what I found just fascinating about the whole thing.
1: Yeah, and I think that there's a certain advantage to being a traveler, you know, just the way that you look at stuff is, uh, you know, I don't like like if I try to write a book about like I grew up on a farm in central Maryland, and I've thought about it, you know, just like I don't think I could write a book about that part of Maryland. I don't think I could, I'd be able to do it because it's just already, I can't even see it, you know, it's kind of like in my in my bones already. Um, But I came from a rural background, and then I got really involved in the arts. Um, and, uh, you know, particularly in theater theater and music, like you said, so that took me up to New York city and I was living in New York and I was pursuing these artistic pursuits. And, you know, generally throughout my life, I'd always worked kind of, you know, blue collar jobs, but not, um, definitely not the industrial blue collar jobs, which I wasn't, um, Quite aware of how different that would be, I guess. When I when I got the bright idea to go to the oil patch, where does the idea
0: even come from? The uh, you talk a little bit about it in the book, but uh, that, that's a weird thing to have pop up when you're hanging out in Brooklyn.
1: Yeah, you know, I I'd always been. I mean, it's one of those, it's, it's, it's usually like the first question people ask me and I find it to be the hardest question to answer in a lot of ways, but, um, you know, I'd grown up, I, I really wanted to join the military. So of kind of a. Funny twist of fate was that um, I was when I was in high school, I was really kind of obsessed. I like wore army clothes to school every day, and um, I remember you know I'd I'd call recruiters and use my brother's name so that I could get uh, <laughs> so I'd get mailers and posters. You know they had the cool posters of snipers and stuff, and then my brothers would be totally fucking pissed because they'd be getting phone calls from recruiters and they had no desire to sign up. Um, But while I was in high school, you know, I had a great teacher who was a theater teacher and he kind of like just put me on a really different path. I mean, I'm the um, my parents had seven kids. I'm the uh, the six of seven and the first boy to uh, graduate high school and the first in my family to attend college. So that so it was so I ended up going to college for acting and it was kind of the thing that just that kept me but I always, I guess, I think I'd always felt like I was straddling worlds in a way, you know, like I never felt exactly like I fit in with the theater kids. (laughs) Um, And, um, and yeah. And so some of that I think is, is sort of like an ingrained motivation. Um, There was part of me too, that I'd always written and, um, and I was writing more and more and I kind of just, you know, I was like, I'm going to write another fucking book about like dating chicks in brooklyn you know right. like i wasn't i i'd become pretty dissatisfied with with the life there just kind of um you know it didn't feel uh it wasn't as close to the bone as what as what i what i'm used to or what i really kind of wanted i guess um so you so and,
0: you're uh, how old were you you were 33 when you headed out there
1: I, I think i was 30 i was older than that i was 36 or 37.
0: okay So you just packed up the the truck, literally headed out of uh, Brooklyn and drove to Williston, uh, North Dakota? Yeah, yeah. That's that's crazy. And uh, (laughs) do this. Give me like one or two stories about kind of early days there, you know, the culture shock you hit, how you found a job. Walk us through a little of that because I found that stuff really good.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, the first thing I noticed driving into town was just kind of how many different license plates there were from all across the country, you know, driving down Route 2 and getting into the heart of Williston. And you're just seeing tags from everywhere, and then seeing um, seeing the guys driving and in some cases seeing people with all their, you know, all their belongings piled in the back, you know. And so I remember being really struck by that. Um, I didn't have a place to stay. It was... The rent was really high. Housing was kind of the biggest uh, hurdle for people, for everybody who was coming to town. Um, So I stayed for I think I did about 10 days in my truck. I did some camping and then um, and then I was sleeping in my truck and going around and looking for jobs. But it's hard to sleep in your truck, man. It was pretty tiring. <laughs> right. I was finding myself like, you know, sitting at the bar and knocking off beers just so that I'd be able to kind of uh get some sleep, you know, get to sleep. And then you wake up and you're hungover. It's like, well, <laughs> it's gonna be a hard day to uh to um to look for jobs, but um you know the culture was really you'd sit down and some of it was was kind of strategic because I knew I could meet some people if I was out and drinking a beer or whatever so I'd sit down at the bar and start talking to somebody and find out where they work and find out um you know if they're hiring or or find other guys who are looking for works so who would, he would just kind of give give you leads um and that and that was an, that was i mean to me
0: to me you know we I did finance and oil and gas right so I sit. 14th floor of an office tower in downtown Houston, Texas and you know put numbers into a spreadsheet and, and the like and I yeah we go out to the field every once in a while but you know it's like when the when the investors are coming out to the field they've always got the nice barbecue grill going we were in the right. air conditioned van we step out here's what a wuss I am so my my partner for 20 years was Mike Hines and Mike's a man's man. I mean, he's, he's like one of the guys you're describing in there ran actually operations for the J field, uh, for Exxon, which is just mean, nasty H2S type field. Uh, oh, that was, yeah. you know, so just a man's man. And, uh, anyway, we go out to the, uh, to the field one time and, and we get out, and we're walking around, and I go, man, this is really dirty. And he said, please don't fucking say that to the company, man. You'll get your ass kicked. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 you know, I
1: have just... No, that's a great point, Chuck. Yeah. It is. It is very dirty. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, but But, you know, the,
0: the people you were talking about meeting, the people you were talking about that you were working with, I mean, those are the characters that actually actually make the oil come out of the ground and stuff. And that's something I, you know, throughout my career, and I guess I'll just go ahead and fess up, and I'll get eviscerated on Twitter for this about, Yates <laughs> doesn't even know what the hell they do out in the field. But, uh, yeah, no, that was uh, that was really interesting character studies of, uh, of mm-hmm. the folks you're you out there with.
1: Yeah, yeah, there's some wild guys. And, you know, I was surprised. I mean, a bunch of dudes I met had been working in the silver mines in Elko, Nevada. And then they came down when Williston was booming. And they were working in Williston. They probably went down to Permian after that. You know, I was surprised to see the uh, kind of that transient migrant worker thing that I always had associated with, like, um, the history of the Dust Bowl or something. Uh, But I was very surprised to kind of find that that was a way of life for not a small number of people.
0: And the interesting thing you did in the book, and you you basically humanized um, these folks in such a way that I think of a traditional right-wing, energy-loud, energy-proud type person would put them on a pedestal, call them Superman, and that would be it you know right. no criticism whatsoever you know overlook any sort of faults um, and you did a lot of that more of that than you know traditional left wing environmentalist liberal would say Riot. they're poisoning the world they're hateful people and all that you yeah. really you really I think walked the middle of the road and kind of gave fair criticism about things like racism sexism difficulties mm-hmm. they had with their fathers etc but at the same time you you obviously had a lot of regard for uh, for a lot of these folks
1: yeah absolutely man i mean there's the you know the uh, the demonization on the left of just of people like that i just can't i mean i can't stand it you know and i also think it is a mistake um to lionize people too much you know Um, because then they just become symbols and 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 then you don't have to take care of them you don't have to help them it's like that's a hard-working man you know he's gonna like that's the backbone of the country he doesn't need to get paid better um and uh and so yeah so you know for me it was just kind of like always uh you know just thinking about what makes different people tick you know and i'm somebody i have friendships with people of all sorts of different political persuasions you know i find it like there was a time when i feel like it used to be kind of fun to argue politics even it was kind of like an enjoyable thing and um you'd kind of get into a heated thing with a buddy or your cousin or whoever and then you'd you'd give a shit you change the subject and do something else um so that was kind of the
0: yeah, it was worse it was worse to talk Yankees and Red Sox than it was politics and Right. And now, 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 right. now I'd rather wear a Derek Jeter jersey into uh, Fenway than uh than talk yeah. politics. <laughs> now,
1: yeah, man. It's just now it's such a fucking minefield, you know, and hopefully it starts things somehow kind of simmer down. Um but um, you know, so I've always just been—I've always just kind of been somebody too that people just kind of sidle up next to and start talking to, <laughs> you know. So that kind of ended up—that um, ended up working working on my behalf. But I didn't, you know. One of the problems I think with so much writing about—I mean, w- when it comes to you know bigger sort of uh, coastal papers, you know, the the New York Times or even in you know magazines, they. They kind of just, um, they drop reporters into these towns and the reporter sits at a fucking diner and asks everybody their opinion. And it's like, well, if you're at the diner, you see the guy as a reporter. He's not, you know, he's not your friend. Right. (laughs) You don't need to, there's no compunction to be fucking, to say anything that you actually think, you know. Um, It would be like, yeah, it would be like, you know, a dude from, um, Fucking Oklahoma in full hunting gear, setting up at a diner in Times Square and like asking the locals their opinions. I mean, you're just not going to get you're not going to really get any true information. And I think most people's needs, you know, most people's most people's basic needs are all the are all the same. It's not like uh, um, so I'm, you know and it, it, it's become kind of more and more important to me to try to just always like find the um like what's the shit that we can agree on here
0: well i'm a i'm a libertarian so i've literally only in my profession in my adult life voted for the libertarian candidate for president you know so oh, yeah. i i always know i'm gonna lose um yeah but i do i do think it kind of gives me a vantage point of i get to throw stones at both sides and you know, everybody right. can throw the stone back about yeah. the loony Libertarian Party and, and all. But I think I'm going to say this is a statement, but, you know, criticize it, critique it, agree with it, disagree with it and all. But, you know, I think one of the elements that I and I'll pick on the right in a little bit, too, but I'm going to pick on the left <coughs> right now. I think there's an element of. When, you know, they see stuff, they see it through the lens of it's going to be, it's racism, etc. And the, the element I wish I could say to the left is, you're probably right. There's a, pro, there's a lot of that. I don't know that all of it is hate. I think some percentage, and I don't know what the percentage is, is just flat out ignorance, you know, it's, you grew right. up. You grew up with, you know, folks just saying the n word, and you say it. Um, but I wonder if you know if you were able on the left to not jump to well, it's hate. I immediately have to criticize. I immediately have to 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 get loud, angry. If I could say, okay, mm-hmm. hey, why would you use that word? Do you know what that word's about? Do you know where that word came mm-hmm. from? Or whatever, on any of a number of things. I wonder if we could help bridge the gap, because at least the vibe I got a little bit from reading your book is probably some of the folks you were chatting with, if you had had those type discussions with, they probably would have said, you're right, man, I probably shouldn't be
1: using that word. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's totally fair. I mean... Um you know, one guy, one guy I worked with, I remember him saying how, uh, you know, and I mean, Williston had like in that part of the country, too, there's like were literally no black people like a guy right. who, who I worked with. He was on. He was a grew up on a farm there. And uh, he said that, you know, he was with his dad there driving down the road and there's a black person. His dad used the N word. And he was like he had. But he but it was that he had just like he got he, exactly what you're saying. He didn't. there's he'd never seen a like a black person except for like on tv and kind of the way it was filtered through um through to him you know so it's a tricky thing but I always find that um and I've been kind of criticized too for like not I guess yelling that people are wrong like on every page of my book and still hanging out with the people um but it's it's real hypocritical to me too also I mean I lived in in New York, when Mike Bloomberg was the mayor, and he instituted stop and frisk, which I just think it's like harder to think of a more fully racist policy that any major mayor or executive in this country has implemented in the last 20 years, and yet he's you know sort of a progressive dar- darling, at least to the extent that he was elected mayor three times in New York, and I know a lot of progressive people who voted for him. Um, and he continues to give buckets of money to progressive causes and they take it. So that, you know, I, I just, it's like, that's a, that to me seems like a a bad policy. Um, and when it comes to, when it comes to people, you know, it's just like, I just always think that trying to be more understanding is the way to go. Um, and the, you know, the, um, even when it's hard, you know, it's like really, and it can be hard. It can be challenging. And I can get, you know, and in the book, too, I definitely get up on my high horse at one point and fucking, you know, yell about a bunch of my politics and shit. Um, So, But no, I I like what you're saying there,
0: because my criticism of the right would be, be, because, you know, you, you hear folks on the right just get so indignant about, well, you know, they're trying to say this, this, and this, and it's like, does it really hurt you? (laughs) <laughs> you know at the end of the day right. i mean can't we be right. a little bit empathetic and, and and the like i mean you know i loved chris rock's take on martin luther king day because you know there was this big you know brouhaha around having martin luther king day and from the right you would hear things like well we've gotten rid of george washington day etc and this is the only federal holiday named after an individual and all that and you know, going back and forth, and I love Chris Rock. He's like, "What kind of racist do you have to be to not want a day off?" I mean, like, you know, <laughs> he's like, "I'd have KKK Day if I had a margarita out by the pool," and right. you know, and that would be, right? <laughs> that would be, you know, that would be my, uh, my, my counter to the to the right is just, "Hey guys, it's okay. Let's have Martin Luther King Day. It's not a bad yeah. thing, you know." Yeah, and every yeah. American ought to read letter from a Birmingham jail. I mean, they just ought yeah. to, you know. Right. And it's not going to kill you if that happens. Right, you know? right.
1: You know, I, I can also say, you know, from personal experience, I mean, I grew up in a pretty, like, hom- homophobic situation, I would say. Like, it just seemed like that that was kind of drilled into me more than any kind of racism or something that. Um, and and so, but I just remember, you know, and and coming from, like, a rural high school and get into college and then just kind of meet, just meeting people who were different from me was huge. Meeting actually some gay people and being like, oh, they're cool. They're, they're not out <laughs> and, recruiting. And, and, I mean, it's you yeah, know, it's not like, <laughs> yeah, they're like trying to yeah, exactly. Right. And then and then just kind of gently being shown that 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 you know me using certain language was dumb and that these kind of ideas or these fears that I had of these people was fucking ridiculous you know i and and i worry that with sort of the way that the culture is now you know young because young men it's like you're fact that you're I mean young men like old men are dumb right <laughs> you're talking about like 8 17 18 year old boys who are like trying out language you know and i and and my concern is that when with the call-out culture and the shutting people down and all this stuff that it it gives them nowhere to turn you know so then the only place to turn is other people who are using that horrible fucking, shitty language and saying dumb shit um so
0: yeah, no, I, I, I think that's that's, uh, that's absolutely right. The, you know, the thing, I, two things, you know, when I grew up, I grew up, um, as we were talking about earlier before we started recording, I mean, my dad is a biology major, PhD in biology, and then goes to med school, sticks around at Rice University to get a PhD in biology because he had met my mom And they weren't even dating. He just wanted to ask her out. So he stays around to get a Ph.D. I'm like, dude, seriously, three years? Three years in a dissertation. Um, But, uh, you know, mom is a biology major who taught biology to put dad through med school. And then she wanted to be a mom. So I'm the oldest of four boys. And she goes back later in life, gets a master's in genetics. And so we were just raised 99% nature, 1% nurture. So in, in the Yates House, homosexuality was you were born that way. I mean, just, you know, right. when, when the sperm and the egg came together, that's what, uh, that's what happened. And, and so, you know, there's that. And then the other thing I always kind of say about, uh, about homosexuality is, you know, all of the Bible that talks about man shall not lay with other man and, and all that— that's the Old Testament. You know, if you go to the New Testament and you say, "Okay, let's just read what Jesus said." Jesus never right. mentioned homosexuality. I mean, yeah, I, he he was big on that. You better love each other. I mean that shit, you know, but but right. but, but in terms <laughs> right, of yeah, right. in terms of homosexuality and so I'm not Saying this to pretend that in my life I've been perfect and haven't used bad language and been insensitive and and all that because I clearly have, mm. but uh, yeah, no, it's it's uh, I think the church has done a big disservice to a lot of people um, on that front. Yeah, yeah. I got to We got to talk about Huck, who uh, yeah. who you met. So just tell me a little bit about Huck, and then I'm going to tell you what broke my heart this afternoon.
1: Yeah. So, um, yeah. So Huck was, uh, when I met him, he had just turned 21 years old and he was uh, one of the first guys I met in the patch. He was, he's uh, six foot, seven inches tall and just like this kind of amazing, goofy, big kid, in a lot of ways um, who was constantly, you know, constantly getting in trouble. He kind of enjoyed, I think, um being thought of as oil field trash you know and being like this rough and tumble roughneck dude um who'd go out and get in fist fights and try and always chase this girl around and um in, in trouble with the cops and trouble at work kind of trouble with everybody but you know the thing that one of the things that i think i was really dr- that i really was drawn to is he also just had like a real sort of innocence to him and um which I think a lot of people like that kind of do, you know, they're just having fun or they're just kind of caught up in what's exciting for a moment <laughs> and they end up getting into all kinds of shit. Um, but he and I, um, after a couple months we kind of clicked and just started hanging out more and more, you know, and he became really, we were, you know, I'm five, seven. So he's a foot taller than me. And, um, and uh and you know much younger than me 16 years younger than me or something but we became thick as thieves and and just kind of like romped around um, town and um you know became one of my best best friends of my entire life now was it, was he
0: Jekyll and Hyde when it came to alcohol he was one guy when he was sober another guy when he was drunk or did it or was it more just as he got drunk he used that as an excuse that it was okay that he punched somebody out or he got into the, the trouble. I was, it was, it was, it was, I was, I was trying to dissect his behavior, you know, mm-hmm. kind of vis-a-vis when y'all were drinking and the like, what was the, what was, what was his relationship with alcohol on that?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question, you know, cause he, he would describe himself as Jekyll and Hyde and, um, You know, and and the sort of the violence and the trouble that he got into was never around me. I was just kind of always there the next day or I had like just left and something would happen. So when I was with him, you know, yeah, it's funny. It's funny. I hadn't ever actually thought about that. But he and I would get loaded and I never saw him get violent or or get in. I I did see him cross cross like a line I saw him cross a line in a strip club <laughs> and get his and t- get his tossed out of his strip club um but I never yeah but I but yeah, I'm trying to think um yeah cuz that, that's there, the
0: interesting thing about the book is you y'all go out and get drunk you're going home and the next morning you're looking at him and he's got a bashed in face or something and yeah. I, I was trying to figure out Kind of trying to figure out that that dynamic. I've got a I I've got a a friend, and uh, I'm gonna change the names just to protect the innocent. But his name's Dan. But when he gets drinking, he turns to Stan. And boy, we're, right. all the friends know that it's like, no, Stan's here now, dude. <laughs> be be careful. Right.
1: Right. And I, you know, and I have, I've had friends like that too, or just kind of people who I know you don't want to be around when they're drinking. And with him, I, I never felt that way, but I did, I did see, I guess, signs of it. And I think that, you know, like that night where he ended up getting his head bashed in, we were, I mean, we were drunk when like I parted with him. Right. And I know that he kept it up for hours. So it could have just been it like really, really tipped the line. He liked to mouth off the people, you know, but um. Yeah, it's a it's a funny one, you know. Because I kind of
0: had that theory, and I was just fascinated by Huck. I, I mean, yeah. I I I now feel like Huck, my best friend as well, you know, because you write, yeah. you write, you write about him a lot. the The other thing I I thought was just his love of uh, his buddy's girlfriend, and I'm blanking on her name. What was it, Cynthia?
1: Uh, I'm blank on the name too. I changed the names in the book. Oh, so that gotcha. I want to get people well, in trouble, so I'd have to remember what Crystal. Her, what she's Crystal, yeah, yeah, you called her yeah, Crystal yeah, yeah. in the
0: book. Yeah,
1: no, <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean the other theory I had on it too is you know unrequited love and love with uh, Crystal, and it's just easier to instead of you know beating his buddy up, it's easier to drink and go beat somebody else up. And I was wondering if that was kind of
1: potential genesis for the uh, for the bad behavior. I think I think that was some of it too, you know. And he would always say that she liked to see him get in fights, you know. She kind of liked seeing seeing him getting in trouble and 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 kind of. And he would do it to show off or do it to like protect her honor, you know, whatever. And so it was like, um, so you know, that was some of it too. I mean, I think that you know something that I talk about in the book that I think is goes for Hawking for. Um, for a lot of the other guys and for myself is just sort of being raised by violent fathers. You know, I think that that's a really big um, kind of theme of the book and something that I was um, really surprised to find at the level that I found, which just seemed like everybody had been beaten up by their dads and had these sort of like really rough experiences as kids. Um, And then they'd kind of ended up in the oil field. (laughs) <laughs> there's an interesting thing you know the the, the military has done some studies on it on it and i talk about it at the end of the book but i was actually just listening to a podcast the other day um about the navy seals and they were talking about um i think it, i think the test is called aces but it has to do with um you know childhood trauma it's like a 20 question test and and um, goes on if you've had an adverse childhood conditions and uh the, there's a recruiter for the Navy SEALs who said he looked for people who had high scores on that because they'd be people who would be kind of um, just rougher, be able to kind of like punish themselves more, be willing to work harder, um, be willing to and be attracted to like the dangerous aspects of, of the, the Navy SEAL jobs. And I think that that's similar when, when you get into extractive work, you know, where you work in. 12, 14 hour days, and you can get your head knocked off at any time. And, um, you just get, you know, cortisol levels, all that stuff is really fucking high. And so I think it was hard, you know, it'd be hard for me to wind down. I'd, you know, you would work for 12 hours and then, um, you know, you get home and it's like, you're in one way completely exhausted. Um, but then in another way, completely kind of wired because, um, you've been, you've been so amped up all day.
0: Well, you know, it was interesting. So when uh, I got divorced about five years ago, and kind of we were separated for a couple of years before that, and you know, going to uh, going to couples counseling and then individual counseling, I paid for more counseling than like the gross national product of a third world <laughs> yeah. third world country. But you know, one yeah. one of the things my therapist said at the beginning of couples counseling was, you know. As weird as this sounds, you know, the language you talk right now with your wife is not good. It's not constructive. That's what's leading to the problems. But when you change your language to something, even if it's way more constructive and something she likes much better, it's going to freak her out. And uh, because you're getting away from your comfort. Uh, zone, you're getting away from something you've 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 been dealing with, and right. it's going to discombobulate her, and she is going to go crazy. She's going to yell at you and scream, and you just basically have to bite your tongue, not say anything until she gets comfortable with you talking this new language, and there's some stability and some permanency in that language. And so, when I was reading your book, and and I had never thought about that, but you know, the abusive father, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. You want to go, you know, go to the military and get yelled at by sergeants. You want to go right. You know, you wanna go out to the oil field and have the company man throw hard hats at you and and all. And yeah. you talk about you talk about how just the adrenaline rush you had dealing with your father. That you've tried to mimic that you know through booze yeah. sex and the like um and it makes a lot of sense it's it's you know if you grow up in mexico city you're probably going to speak the language you know spanish and you're going to talk spanish your whole life until you spend a lot of time energy and effort and learn another language you know? right,
1: right yeah 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 you know for me it's kind of the biggest revelation of the book and it and or the biggest revelation that the book taught me, I would say that working on it kind of taught me, and um, you know, so and it goes back to to like, well, what's the reason that you that I went out there, you know? And I think that that's like sort of a big subconscious reason. Even my even my love of performing, I mean, I get incredible stage fright. I get really bad stage fright. Some not all the time, but sometimes, and I found that like I think even that for me has been like. Is a way to be, that's a way to be in like a c- controlled high stakes situation. Right. Cause nobody's actually going to hurt you or anything. You're all pretending to be whatever, you know, Kings or Cowboys or right. whatever the play or the scene is, but you get to kind of enact this like ritual of these high stakes situations. Um, and, and for me, that's always been, been, you know, that, I think that that that's part of it too, you know? Um, so and when i realized that you know as i was writing the book i'm like writing about these guys i'm starting to kind of see these patterns and everything i didn't really plan to go as deep into my personal life and as um deep into like all my fucked upness right uh, as i did but i i hit a point where i was like i can't write about these guys and not write about myself like i won't be able to look these guys in the eye you know i just won't be able to i'll be like um and it became a big kind of part of my decision to like dive into my own personal history and these kind of things and try to you know show myself as as an example as an as another example of this um and i think that there's ways you know so so for now so now for me it's kind of like now that i feel like i really know this about myself it's sort of like finding ways to utilize it and use it for the force of good and not for like self-destruction or problematic behavior.
0: Well, I mean, you know, you read Brene Brown and the pressure point for women is always body image. And the pressure point for us men is always our inability to fix something, you know? And I think, mm. you know, obviously having a difficult relationship with a father, whether it's abusive or whatever, you as the kid can't fix fix it, right? I mean, you're just a kid, you know, you can't, you can't do it. And so that's where your sense of self-worth gets devastated is, you know, I can't fix it. That's our problem as a guy. And the, and there are two things kind of about it that, that came across loud and clear in the, in the book is one, and again, agree, disagree, take this wherever you want. But one, I think you being out in the oil field And learning to be "quote unquote" a good hand was actually you taking control and being able to fix something, you know. Mm -hmm. And so you could read into, you know, I could hear it, and I could hear it in your voice because I was doing the audible, the audio book. But I mean, I could just hear, you know, the sense of self worth growing in you as you're out in the oil Mm -hmm. field and you're figuring out how to how to do this stuff. And then the second thing I'll uh, I'll throw out there, kind of you know, from the from the Brene Brown uh, wing of of therapy, is you know the only re- the only way you get rid of that sense of shame is by talking about it. My priest, you know, I'll kind of we have a check in. I'll say, yeah, I did this, I feel really bad, and he'll go, yeah, I did that. And I go, dude, you're a priest, you can't freaking do that. <laughs> what the hell? So so kind of that that's the that's sort of the lens that therapy you know has me mm-hmm. looking through the world in and that's what the lens I was reading your your book through was the book really kind of the first time you were you were sort of in effect sharing your story or or was it just more you you've always been able to talk to folks about it and and it wasn't that but I I kind of get the sense just listening to the book that this was you know, kind of holy cow! I'm, I'm, uh, I'm starting to share my story.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, this is the first time, man.
0: <laughs> it fucking so, sucks, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. it's really, it really, yeah. it really does to kind of yeah. lay it. Yeah, no. I've,
1: <laughs> I gave- it's funny, and and I, you know, I was doing it, I was in therapy while I was working on the the personal parts of the book and the family parts of the book, and, um, you know, it's funny, but, when, like, when it came out, or right before the book came out, I was like, everybody <laughs> is going to know my shit. <laughs> and, like, in a really, really, really deep way. um, And, you know, because an- another thing was that, like, I couldn't, I, I do dumb shit when I'm, you know, I do dumb right. shit. So it's like I'm in the fucking oil field. I get so drunk that I drive the wrong way down the, the highway. Yeah. You know, where I'm living in fucking New York and I'm like doing blow. And, and, and when a date goes bad, I'm going to a, a brothel. Right. <laughs> like yeah. Sleeping with prostitutes. It's just like, I was doing dumb shit, you know? And it was like, um, and, and, and I just, but I couldn't leave that stuff out. And, and, um, because it, it just, it, the context of the book and again like the way i'm I'm writing about these other men and these people that i met it was like i just felt like i was like i owe it to them and then it became well, i owe it to me and um you know one of the most beautiful things about the book uh for me is that um you know i collaborated on all the family passages with my with my family so um, you know, I reached out to all of them and this was probably the hardest part of what I was writing was I reached out to, I have two brothers and two sisters who are still with us. And, um, I reached out to them and I said, look, I'm writing about the family and it's getting pretty gnarly. (laughs) And, uh, And I just want to give you the chance to read it. And if there's something that you, um, don't want in there, I'll take it out. And if there's, um, you know, if you remember something differently, you know, tell me and I'll, I'll possibly change it or we can talk about it and try to figure it out. And, um, you know, much to their credit, they were all, cause you hear stories about people writing a memoir and then they kind of like, they don't, they, they you know, they lose family members right. because of the shit that they talk or the stuff that they tell about. And I was like, I, and I've had kind of tough relationships with certain of my siblings already, you know, they but they were all kind of in a good enough place um, to, uh, to offer that. And, um, you know, much to the credit, they all read it and they all have been incredibly supportive and we all talked about it um and talked about different memories and i incorporated some of the stuff that they remembered my sister megan like rewrote a paragraph <laughs> she was like she just changed it i was like well, all right that's pretty good <laughs> um and uh you know and it's been really healing for uh for my for my family it's been so fucking healing for me man and it's you know it's funny because it's like well I wrote, you wrote a book about the oil field but i'm telling you know when i talk to people about it, i'm like yeah it's like about kind of healing myself it's a huge part of the and um, and finding a way that kind of heals the family. And I get, you know, I get messages from people um, you know, every week or so. I, I get a message and some people have, it's just kind of helped them out. Um, you know, I was, it's, it's funny when it first came out, I was like criticized for, um, you know, it's like uh, the subtitle is work, brotherhood and transformation. And uh, I think the New York Times said, well, there's not very much transformation in it. And I was like, look, you're holding the fucking transformation. What, what fucking book did they read? <laughs> I mean, I God, man. I was like, I'm like, it's in your fucking hands, motherfucker. That's the transformation. He was like, he comes home and he's more mixed up than he was when he left. I'm like, yeah, well. It's a game. It's like you know. It's like uh, NFL football. It's a game of inches.
0: Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the no. The I, and I did not read the New York Times review because uh, they wanted I forget a dollar ninety nine per month, and I just refused to give. <laughs> yeah you know, from Texas, man. I can't give Dude. the New York Times yeah. any, uh, any money. But but no, I mean it, no. I I felt the transformation you went through. Um, yeah. Because uh, I, I am actually not surprised by our conversation. This is the first time you and I have ever talked. I'm actually mm-hmm. not surprised yeah. by it because, you know, our conversation now feels like you're in a pretty good spot, um, yeah. you know. And, yeah, you went through some really gnarly stuff to get there. I mean, the, the, I, mean I just can't even fathom knowing that your father is sexually assaulting your sister. And, 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 and having to deal with that as a kid, I mean, as a kid, you should be worried about, do I want to watch Spongebob or do I want to, you know, go, <laughs> you know, do I want to go play with Elmo or something? And yeah, yeah no, I, I mean, the fact you're able to overcome that and the fact you're able to talk to that, talk about that with a therapist, talk about that with your, with your sister today, man, it's just huge kudos to you
1: yeah yeah man it's a you know it's like an it's a impossible thing to carry as a kid and then you know you just it you don't uh you know it's hard to know what to say about it but right. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah. you know it's just like jesus christ <laughs> um but it it it's been freeing really to have like all of it out in the world you know um i'd say that ninety you know 99 of, of of it i just feel has, has been really positive and just like yeah it's fucking what happened you know because having guilt and shame about stuff that you didn't even do is a whole thing you know <laughs> so, so my uh
0: my priest um his kind of shtick and he came on he came on my podcast and we were talking about this and you know one of the big transformations i went through over the last call it you know five to seven years is i used to go to church i mean i Grew up and we went to church every Sunday, but I went because I was scared God was gonna you know ban me to hell when I die, and uh, you know so I was I was I was scared of burning for the rest of my life, and that's why I would go right. to church. And you know, my priest Patrick's like, well, we counted on that in the church. That was our that was our <laughs> go to, you know. That's what that was, that's what we used. But you know, really in terms of working with with Patrick and and unlocking a lot of stuff up there it very much so was now there's this cool guy jesus wants to have a relationship you can you can talk and all that and so the way patrick actually pitches jesus is he's not running around with the of course we read the bible and all that sort of stuff but his his approach is pretty simple he's like hey if i can convince you there's a community of forgiveness i can forgive you you can forgive me we can each probably more importantly forgive ourselves for stuff, man, if I can get you to do that, selling Jesus after that's pretty easy. And, um, you know, so we spend right. a lot of time talking about, you know, forgiving ourselves, because, you know, back to that shame, the only, you know, shame hates words. The only way to get rid of shame is actually talking mm-hmm. about it and, and the like, and, you know, whoever you choose to tell, you know, 99% of the time and they're saying me too and they're accepting, that same person is also the person that's going to say, yeah, you did it. That was really stupid, but no big deal. You know, you forgive your friend right. and you would say that to your friend. You forgive your friend so much easier than you do yourself.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's totally true. Totally true.
0: So you just, you, you totally broke my heart the way you told me that Huck died when I was sitting there listening <laughs> to the book. I mean, we're, yeah, yeah you just, it was, you know, <clears throat> i looked look back and that was really a great day because Huck died a few years later and I was like, what? And, and I went back and, uh, and, and played that a couple of times, you know, I don't, I don't think I was ready for that.
1: Yeah. I mean, not that
0: you were, I'm not trying to right. imply, that, <laughs> imply that you were ready for it, but,
1: right you know I, I yeah i wasn't i mean it, it was uh it was completely shocking and and i didn't know how to um you know so yeah and then it was it, I, for me that was kind of one of my just like most treasured memories of him and it i felt like well, let me just say that it's gonna happen here and then um because um otherwise it's in like the last three pages of the book, you know, where you're kind of getting a lot of other information. So it was a little bit of a, um, a you know, the storytelling technique of like when to say it was one thing, but uh, you know, it's a huge loss. He was 24 years old and um, you know, it was an opioid overdose. um, But, and he wasn't somebody who really used opioids, you know, he, I mean, he would do drugs once in a while, whatever he liked drinking, um, obviously, um, but it just was one of those things where he happened to do something on a, a certain night and the combination of stuff he did um, killed him. And, uh, you know, I've been lucky and that I'm in touch with his, uh, his sister and brother-in-law are friends of mine and we've stayed in touch and they're really, uh, they've been really supportive. I don't know, if they weren't supportive, I don't know what I'd be able to do with myself.
0: <laughs> Another thing that I thought you did a real nice job on in the book, and I'd love to get you to kind of kind of tell it is, you know, Buffalo Skinner and kind of that story mm. and sort of how uh, and and how you you relate that to what we're doing with the oil business right now. So I'd love to get you to kind of recap that chapter because I think I think that bears bears saying today because we're having that discussion every day about energy transition type stuff and being a steward right. of the earth
1: <clears throat> right um yeah you know i mean another you know so the other big factor i guess throughout the book or just through my world view is sort of coming through music and listening to folk songs and um, these kind of old songs or sort of ancient songs and so Buffalo Skinners is a tune that was collected by, uh, was first written down by John Lomax in like 1907 or something, Um, and uh, don't quote me on the year, but um, it it's a story about, and it's sung by this guy Ramblin' Jack Elliott, who's a um, Woody Guthrie did a cover, did a version of it, and um, a lot of different a lot of different players have done a cover of it. I do it now, but uh, Jack Elliott has a version that I think is. Is about as top shelf as you can get. So it's a story of these guys who go on the road were basically hired by the railroad companies or in some cases given money by the um, the uh, US military um, to just destroy the buffalo herds. So they would they would head out on the road and they would just mow down, they used needle guns and they'd f- found ways to trick the buffalo to running into circles. And they'd just mow them down, um, buffalo. Uh, buffalo Bill Cody and some really famous of the old school cowboys um, had that job for a while and they'd littered the carcass. There's some startling pictures of you know the prairie or parts of Texas just littered with um, buffalo carcasses. And um, I've just always been kind of obsessed and really into the song. And as I was out there and doing the oil field work, it started to feel kind of like I started to feel like I was in the song, you know, I was listening to that song all the time and just being with this group of guys and kind of this band um, and doing this really hard labor that's extracting in some ways, you know, the resource um, kind of making way for industry, but sort of like at what cost Um, and And also, you know, I was also also tuned into sort of the. It was a disrespectable job, you know. It wasn't, right. uh, Just like the term "roughneck," you know, it's not a. uh, It's been sort of, um, it's worn with pride now, but it was initially an insult, right? (laughs) So the same thing with the buffalo skinners. I just and I found it fascinating to kind of just meditate on that, you know, those ideas, um, and move them together and kind of put them next to each other
0: and and i like how you how you took it that in effect these guys for some money would go mm-hmm. out kill all the buffalo and in effect by doing that they wound up destroying their way of life you know the the the, right. the quote unquote wild wild west and the parallels right. you can draw to that of you know there's no and, and you're very eloquent about this in the in the book about you know all the wonderful things oil has done that it's you know you start you you say this great thing about how literally it's you know fire that separates man from the from the beast but then maybe it's oil that separates modern man from prehistoric man just because of the good that that oil has done for us but at the same yeah. time You know, are we are we not treating it sacred like the American Indian treated the buffalo as sacred?
1: And are we destroying our planet?
0: Right. Right.
1: And I think that that is, you know, in some ways, that's the balance or that's the tension that needs to be struck with it. You know, that um, and it's a it's there's it's a level of nuance. It's really hard to get across in sort of the political in today's political environment, For one thing but there is you know there yeah but i think that that's um right you know when you kill the buffalo then there are trains that can get everywhere and then your frontier town is all of a sudden like a bustling metropolis and you don't you don't have that anymore or in north dakota when there's oil rigs everywhere you lose hunting lands you know you lose places to go fishing and that sort of thing the thing that you the things that you like about the people that live there like about that part of the community um, and then, and then now with oil, it's everything so macro, right? Because it's, it's the whole Earth that we're dealing with.
0: when I was giving my speech last night to the uh, Petroleum Alliance of of Oklahoma, you know the whole difficulty in this, you know, because there's no question we have a tidal wave coming at us of people want carbon reduction, and it's not the government; it's not just regulatory. It is consumers. It is mm. companies, it's customers saying, hey guys, we want this And so it's a very real phenomenon. Um, you know my three kids that have had the greatest life of any three humans on the planet and it's all been fueled by oil. If you ask them tomorrow, hey, should we get rid of the oil and gas companies?" they're like, yeah, absolutely in a right. heartbeat you know it's. Kind of, <laughs> right. They don't like my answer, of, well, stop buying their product and they'll go away kind of you know economics <laughs> right. 101. But yeah, no. The the difficult thing we have, and and that's why I hate that the rhetoric gets so heated, so quick in this that we can't have this discussion. Is, you know, it's it's not just us. It's China. It's India. And you know, yeah, they've committed to to carbon zero. Do we really believe China on that? Do we really believe they're going to do it by twenty sixty? Because you know, unfortunately, there's not. Hey, here's the peeing section of the of the swimming pool, and here's the non-peeing section of the swimming pool. You know, somebody pees right. in the pool, we all get it, and so that's that's really the, the the hard thing. And and I think if we could somehow calm down the rhetoric and be more constructive and think through that dynamic, uh, we'd be better off. And I thought your story was put pretty, pretty eloquent way to think about it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah yeah you know and i mean i think we i think that we just we have to do what what, you know the best that we can and there are limitations on it but um but yeah the rhetoric is so so over the top and for me it's not even you know it's interesting because it's not even uh like a right left issue you know i I feel like everything is put in this well you know the uh the, the left wants to ban fracking And, um, you know, I'm considering myself to be a very progressive person. I don't think we should ban fracking right now. It doesn't make any sense to me. It's just because I know the issue. Yeah. (laughs) You know, so all of a sudden, but you say that and people are like, well, you're a moderate. It's like, well, (laughs) you know, okay, whatever, you know, or I mean, um, a a lot of stuff that gets put on the right and left or the, you know, or gets you, will get you called a moderate is kind of like, um, I don't know. It's just it's just nuance.
0: Yeah. No, the, uh, you're absolutely right. Because I mean, I think in if we're going to be moderates about it, there probably really is a quote unquote deal to do where maybe the United States and the Western world, let's rope Europe into it, ought to finance uh, natural gas infrastructure in China and India. Mm-hmm. You know, let's let's stop building right. three coal plants. Because coal's the biggest enemy, right? If we can get, right? You know, if we can get rid of coal, um, and and all, because I, I do think China and India have a legitimate beef in that. Hey, just because you got there first, and you guys got to live the life of MTV and Coca Cola and Levi jeans, right. you know. Hey, we want our stuff too. By the way, Twitter makes fun of me for always saying I want my MTV because all these little young fuckers don't remember when MTV actually played, <laughs> we actually played videos and was cool. So I'm just right. I'm doubling down on it. Yeah, we want MTV too.
1: But yeah, no, there's there's definitely
0: uh, there's there's definitely something to to do there. So, but uh, hopefully calmer calmer heads will prevail. So now, what are you yeah. doing now? So you've you've written the book what what's mm-hmm. what's kind of a day-to-day life for you now
1: um it's been pretty interesting so i've been um i mean i've been doing a lot of promoting of the book and um and writing some articles i have something that's coming out in the guardian on sunday um i guess by the time this airs it'll have already come out but um and so you know i'm just writing i write every day and I, as much as i can um as many <clears throat> not i don't write as much as i can every day but i try to write every day. And um, looking at a couple other possibilities, I'm hoping that by the end of this summer, I know for sure what my next project is. I'm kind of um, toggling between the two projects. Um, uh, Two projects to kind of see which one I think is the one that I'm gonna really go with.
0: Any sneak peek on that? Are you keeping that
1: under wraps? I'm gonna keep it under wraps just 'cause it's not they're not quite ready to be said out loud, you know. Yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I've been doing that and, and playing some music. I'm working on um, getting a getting a record together. I've been putting out the songs in the audiobook, um, releasing them slowly, and working on um, putting out a new record this uh, or, or recording a new album this summer. Um, I'm going to L.A. and. Actually, uh, next week, and I might record a song there. So, kind of, I'm also getting into I'm also maybe, maybe doing some more audiobook work, and then I'd be narrating other people's audiobooks.
0: Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do that well. You've got a a great a great uh, voice for that. So, here's one of the things I've been doing on the um, on the podcast. Uh, when I first started it out, I ripped off an old Craig Kilborn bit, and we would do five questions and like. Two or three of them would be serious, but two or three of them would be stupid, and it was kind of a <laughs> funny bit and all. But it really didn't tell anything about the guest. And so we uh, we've we've moved over now to I, I ask um, a guest to provide a playlist, and you're going to say, "Well, what does that actually mean?" And I go, "Well, I don't know. Just make it up on the fly, kind of whatever you whatever you want to do." But what we've but what we've found is people talking about their playlist. Tells us a lot more about people um, than just sitting around, you know, doing five questions. We had one guy come on and and on one of his songs was the song that got him through his parents' divorce. Had a young guy come mm-hmm. on who, you know, talked on and on about all these uh revolutionaries back in the day who sold out for money cuz he was saying old guys like me did that in the oil business you know we we sold out we took the money and his generation was going to be more you know more <laughs> responsible with it so i'll kind of put you on the spot about that name name i don't know two or three songs take it wherever you want that meant something to you in your life and you know what were the songs what were the circumstances that they they meant something to you and Hey, the audiobook was great. I I encourage everybody to get it because your songs are there. It would not be vain if you named your own songs on that cuz they're really good
1: stuff, man. <laughs> thanks, man. <laughs> oh, thanks. Um yeah, that's a fun one. I, you know, music is is such an important part of my life. I've definitely been, uh, you know, I moved I'm living in Eastern Kentucky now and I've been uh, kind of delving into Kentucky music since I moved down here. Um, there's a great uh, duo called the Local Honeys. Um, and Linda Jean Stokely actually sings on my tunes on the that I've recorded for the audiobook. Um, I've been listening to their stuff. I've been listening to um, Tyler Childers, who's another uh, country, Kentucky, Eastern Kentucky guy. And um, So that's been on my playlist a lot lately. The single Uh, most
0: disturbing musical event I've ever had I've ever had happen to me in my life, always been a Van Halen guy. You know, I kind of came to to age in the eighties, you know, so give me some hair metal, you know. That's my jam. (laughs) David Lee Roth, and I think this was kind of the late nineties, made a bluegrass version of jump. And oh, wow. yeah, with fiddles, and he shows up singing it with a bandana around, around his neck, and in cowboy <laughs> boots and and jeans and all. You can go. You can go find that on YouTube single most disturbing so all all i ask wow. is as we get into bluegrass and stuff
1: just don't do a, just don't do any of the hair metal songs that's all i ask <laughs> right that does seem like a line that just shouldn't be crossed <laughs> <laughs> you know? yeah um, it, was, it was really surreal watching that going good god what was he thinking yeah <laughs> it's funny that is funny um, but yeah, I always, you know, I love a, a. I always like to try to get a sense of place, and I've lived in a lot of places, and so, so I think that uh, that I mean that might be, is revealing in a certain way that being in this place is really interesting because of the uh, the music here. I've actually never really lived anywhere where people like the same music as me as much as here in Kentucky. <laughs> so it feels pretty. It's 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 uh, it's pretty comforting. Oh, that's um, very that's very cool.
0: I did. Uh, I did something this this past weekend that I hadn't done, and I've always been a music guy, and, and will listen to to like everything. Uh, yes, I I will fess up that uh, I have a natural man love for Brett Michael of Poison, but you know I've I've <laughs> listened to a lot of artists, and I've actually been lucky enough to have you know various musicians as friends that'll let me come out and come out and roadie for them. But something I've done. And if you haven't done, it's something that's got to be on your list to do. I went to Clarksdale, Mississippi, this weekend, home of the blues. Took the whole tour, saw where Muddy Waters grew up. Um, you know, uh. went to the crossroads where Robert Johnson cut the deal with the devil, so he could be the greatest right. guitar player of all time. Went and saw Memphis Minnie's grave and uh, right. and the like, and it uh, it was really really compelling and you sort of understood the blues because you can read about you know i'm a sharecropper woe is me and that's how i learned to play the blues you go see that shit and you're like holy cow i get it
1: yeah right you see the land you know the land that they they came from it's uh a yeah, it's really interesting. You know, I mean, I'm pretty, I'm pretty open to all kinds of stuff. I'm pretty Catholic. Taste. I was, I was in Key West uh, recently. I did a writer's residency at this studio down there, and I got to spend four or five weeks in, in the Keys. I turned on the fucking Jimmy Buffett, man. I was listening oh, to Buffett man. and hanging out. I had a great time. I was like, he's great. I hadn't really realized how good of a songwriter he is. I went, uh, uh,
0: Yeah, I, I spent a weekend in the Keys and came away with a a, a big appreciation for Jimmy Buffett. I'm like, I get it, yeah. man. Yeah, <laughs> I get I totally it. totally
1: was. Cheeseburger in okay, paradise. Some fucking, yeah, let's have some mojitos and just do this thing. <laughs> That's awesome. Well,
0: Magic Mike, you were very cool to come on, man. This is, you know, I just kind of hit you up, some random dude who's Chuck in uh, in Houston, and I hit you up on Twitter, <laughs> and you came in. And I, 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 will say this to the audience: everybody's got to go buy the book and uh, and read the book because, you know, my audience is generally bunch of a uh, bunch of energy folks, and so you'll find the description of the oil field and stuff going on fascinating. But I think, you know, a lot of my audience, being energy folks, have just had their balls busted like nobody else over the last couple of years. I mean, who would have ever thought we'd see $37 oil, which we did. And so a lot of what you wrestle with in the book, I know that my audience, just given the direct messages I get, the texts I get, and the reaction to some of the stuff that's been out on the podcast, I know a lot of my audience is going through the same thing, so you were really cool to come on and talk about it.
1: Oh, thanks so much, man. Oh, this has been a real pleasure. It's it's great to be able to talk about it and just to try to try to uh, reach people and just try to, you know, figure it out. It's it it's it, it, yeah, it's great. I I appreciate it a lot.
0: Yeah, you know, I think we all figure out, you know, you just all want a little bit of acceptance. You want folks to kind mm-hmm. of pat you on the back you know, every once in a while. And when you get the courage to finally say something, you know, you want somebody to say, me too. You want somebody to, to say, man, hey, I hear you. I feel you. So yeah. how do uh, how do people get the book and uh, plug um, the website? And uh, feel free to plug kind of kind of anything else you want to.
1: Sure. So, that, well, the book is called The Good Hand, and uh, my website is thegoodhand.org. Um, I also make music under that name. It was my band name before uh, <laughs> before I b- became the book title. <laughs> um, and um, you can get the book pretty much. You should be able to get it just about anywhere. So I would suggest people call up their independent, their kind of closest local store. But um, it's on Amazon, and uh, you know I like shilling the audiobook too because it has my songs on it, and I feel like it's gotten a good. it's gotten a real good response, which uh, means a lot. I put a lot effort in the audiobook for me it was like you know it was the last thing that we did before the book came out so it was kind of my way to say goodbye to it and um before it headed out into the world to make its own friends so I'm really have a fondness for the uh for the audiobook and um, and,
0: and I I concur with that I know I've said it a couple of times on the podcast but it's it's you do a really great job and I actually felt it in your voice this whole sort of transformation and you know your first day out on the job being worried about moving stuff you can you can hear it in your voice it's not just the words you can tell yeah. you lived it
1: yeah yeah you know I, I as i wrote the book too i i would i said it all out loud multiple times so in the final stages of writing the book i said the entire fucking book out loud i think three times Uh, which was like felt like a herculean task but it it got me so that i felt good about every single word of it you know as good as i knew i knew i could get
0: well it's good stuff magic mike thank you so much for coming on
1: yeah thank you so much for having me chuck it's been this has been really great